Hello and welcome from Geneva, Switzerland and the World Economic Forum. Welcome to our Great Reset Dialogue series. Today's theme is Building Future Resilience to Global Risks. Over the next hour, we have a great group of guests joining to help us explore that theme. We have the President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen. We have First Secretary John Kerry joining us from the US. We have Arne Sorensen, uh, the CEO and President of Marriott International. The New York Times is Ben Smith. Uh, M. Sanjan, CEO of Conservation International, and delighted to welcome also Stephanie Kelton, Professor of Economics and Public Policy at Stony Brook University. But to begin proceedings, I'm going to hand over to my colleague, Burger Brenda, President of the World Economic Forum. Thank you, Adrian. And uh, it's a great panel. Uh, we have uh, another challenging month ahead of us. We know that uh, in Europe, uh, we're in the second wave. Um, of uh, the COVID. We know that the economies are not growing as we would have liked, but uh, still there is a lot of stimulus there. And we also have um, the US elections and a new administration. But uh, to kick this off, uh, we're so pleased to have the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, with us uh, from Brussels. We know a lot uh, is a no on the table, an agenda uh, of uh, the Commission and the Commission's leadership uh, is so crucial. So Ursula, so good to have you here and um, look forward to uh, hearing from you. And then I think we will have also a couple of questions uh, in the follow-up. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Many thanks for the introduction. And I would really like uh, to start by thanking you, Borge, and the World Economic Forum for the invitation. So I've been following the very impressive Great Reset Initiative from afar, yes, over the last weeks and months. And uh, I've seen you drawing on the perspectives of the leaders uh, you brought together. So whether in government or in business, in academia or civil society, this is impressive. So there are two reflections um, that I would like to discuss um, and with them I would like to frame our discussion around. Um, the first is that we are in this pandemic rediscovering the value of global cooperation, be it in sharing data and science or, for example, working together to finance and fairly distributing tests, treatments and vaccines. And this reflects the simple fact that we are all in this together. So humanity has a collective unifying challenge to overcome this pandemic. And it has a common interest to do so in order, of course, as you said, to reopen our economic and social life. But these shared circumstances do not automatically translate into a shared sense of purpose or action. It is not a given that the world will cooperate and show solidarity when we finally have a vaccine. It is not a given that we will collectively learn the lessons before the next unex unexpected crisis. So these are all things that we will have to work at. And I can assure you that the EU is at the forefront of those efforts. The truth is also that just as we rediscovered the value of global cooperation, 
We are, and you mentioned that, we are exposed to the fragilities of our international system. So it became clearer than ever that we need to update the way we work together. And I will come back to this um, later on in a moment. The second reflection I have is that COVID-19 has been a great accelerator of change, whether on climate or digital, geopolitics, of course, but also on economics. And what you see is that the transformation of our societies and economies is speeding up by the day. And I see this also as an opportunity, as it is a necessity. So to take a few examples, uh, we know, for example, that there is a link between the rise of infectious diseases on one hand and the rising temperatures and mainly the loss of nature, the loss of biodiversity on the other. And we've seen in uh, recent years, typical tropical diseases like dengue fever, for example, locally transmitted in Croatia, in France, in Portugal, even actually in urban New York. Or another fact that we know, we know that if we carry on as we are, some 500 million more people will be exposed to disease carrying mosquitoes by 2050. So completely different scenarios and acceleration by change. And we've seen the damage this can do to our health, our society and our economy. But the good news is we have real agency here. So if I take the loss of biodiversity and the climate change, we can address our unsustainable consumption of raw materials, for example, or energy or water and food, the land use. We can address this in a way that creates jobs. And we've proven that we can cut emissions while growing our economy and attracting investment. So all this, what I've framed, will require systemic change. And this is why we have the European Green Deal and we have set the goal to be the first climate neutral continent by 2050. For us, it is a blueprint for our future. So right now we are looking at how we cut emissions, how we restore and protect nature, how we produce, we're thinking of a circular economy, how we consume, how we live and work, eat and travel, you name it. We're looking at all these topics. And the second point is fighting climate change and loss of biodiversity. We see there's growing momentum around the world from China to Japan, South Africa, South Korea. All these are countries that are now announcing their climate and carbon neutrality goals too. This is good news. And of course, uh, Borge, we look forward to the United States rejoining the Paris Agreement under President-elect Joe Biden. So all these are important steps to fight climate change, but also to motivate the entrepreneurs and the inventors and to give investors and businesses the certainty they need. And change is happening just as fast in other areas. So since uh, the beginning of the pandemic, we saw an explosion in digital innovation and the use of tech. 
They enabled factories to stay open. They enabled companies to sell their products, people to access essential public services, you name it. We have to keep pace with this change. And that means that we will certainly have to write a new rule book for the digital economy and the digital society. So covering everything from data to infrastructure, but also talking about security and democracy, technology to fair taxation. All these are topics on the table with digital change. So ladies and gentlemen, the need for global cooperation and this acceleration of change will both be drivers of the great reset. And I see this as an unprecedented opportunity. The truth is too that in the last crisis, we missed the chance to modernize our economy. In fact, we did absolutely the opposite. We got back to growth by using massive stimulus packages to invest in fossil fuels and to invest in the old technologies. And in this process, we saw a sharp rise in commodity prices and in emissions, while at the very same time, people were struggling to find work and to make ends meet. And we cannot afford to make the same mistake again. This is the reasoning why it was so important that in the European Union, we agreed that uh, we first of all have a 1.8 trillion euro package, which includes our 70, 750 billion recovery plan. We call it next generation EU. But we want to use this investment, yes, to recover from the crisis, but by building a fairer, a greener, a more digital and a more resilient economy. And how are we going to do that? We say 37% of next generation EU will be, have to be invested in projects that deliver on the European Green Deal. So whatever the Im imagination gives from clean transport infrastructure to clean hydrogen, the innovation behind it, but also to support our industries and manufacturers to go into these new technologies from housing renovations to find nature-based solutions. And of course, the big project of circular economy. To support all this, around 30% of next generation EU's uh, 750 billion euro will be raised through green bonds on the capital markets. It's completely new, but it's enormously fascinating. And we are committed to strengthening our position as world leaders in green finance. And by this, notably to ensure that our small and medium companies get access to the capital they need to make this green transition than a reality. This is climate change. Another 20% of next generation EU will finance digital projects so that we can invest in artificial intelligence, improve the connectivity, or for example, build a European microprocessor. So next generation EU will support member states in the digitalization, but of course also, and this is the third big pillar, support member states in crucial reforms to making our economies and labor markets more resilient. Of course, the 
starting point for recovery is getting through this pandemic. And that means we have to manage this second wave. We are deep in the second wave in Europe in a very careful and in a coordinated way, both here in the European Union, but also, of course, across the world. And while a safe vaccine and a massive stimulus will hopefully soon get us moving, we all know by now that the recovery may not be V-shaped and it may not be felt immediately by all. So the point is we need resilience, both for the recovery and we need resilience to prepare for the potential next pandemic or external shock, which could come at any time. And you see this reflected indeed in the World Economics Forum's recent report on business risks. It's, it's a great report. So the data showed that the main risks identified by the global executives are unemployment, infectious diseases, financial crisis, cyber attacks, or the impact of climate change. So in all these topics, we need to step up prevention, we need to step up preparedness across all these areas. But this will strengthen us all, and this is why we will continue to strengthen our single market and single currency. This is why we are investing in the cybersecurity. This is why we will update our industrial strategy, because we know that this pandemic has been an accelerator of all these changes, and we have to be prepared to face the next steps that are ahead of us. It is also um, one of the reasons why we created another instrument that we call SURE. Here, the focus is on the companies and the workers. SURE is to support short-time work schemes, even if the work is not there, to subsidize the wages in the European countries. And the philosophy behind it is keep your workforce in your healthy companies till the pandemic is over. We help you by this, even if you don't have enough orders. But the moment the market is picking up again, you will need a skilled workforce. You will need the knowledge in your company to be then on the market and take the orders. We support that by 100 billion euro of social bonds, a novelty too. Finally, we also need to find new ways to do things. And this pandemic has shown us that we need to create multi-layered partnerships which bring together very different stakeholders. So the international institutions, but also the governments, the business community. But I'm also looking at philanthropists, so for example, civil society. We need this new multi-layer approach that we can deliver big ideas on the ground. So think global, act local. We have seen some of this already, for example, in the United States, where states and cities and companies took up the mantle of climate action. If you look at the map, it's fascinating. They took up the mantle of climate action even while the country was withdrawing from the, uh, from the Paris Agreement. And I believe that the real test case for this approach can be the vaccine. So 
back in the first wave, the European Union, in partnership with the WHO and Global Citizen, brought together more than 40 countries. But we brought also on board organizations, citizens from all over the world, foundations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, or for example, the Wellcome Trust and the World Economic Forum. And all of us together, we raised more than 16 billion euro for tests, for treatments and vaccines. And in the same spirit, we have helped to set up the so-called COVAX facility to ensure that the poorest countries in the world will have access to vaccines. And this is to the world's largest and most diverse portfolio of vaccines. COVAX is a coalition of 186 partners from the biggest economies to the poorest countries in the world, or from global institutions to charitable foundations. So you have the NGOs and the CEOs sitting together and working in COVAX. Our common aim is to have 2 billion doses of vaccines available by the end of 2021 with equal access for all participating countries. That is not only for the high-income countries, but mainly also for the middle and low-income countries. And it works. So this shows not only the potential of these layered partnerships, but it also shows their necessity to deliver on the world's most pressing issues. Ladies and gentlemen, these are some of the keys which I believe can help us recover and build a healthier and stronger world for tomorrow. And uh, I've spoken a lot now about fighting climate change, being up to date with digital technologies, working in a fragmented world for a affordable and equitable access to vaccines for everybody. I would like to finish with a final re reflection or idea, which I think will also be key for the Great Reset. With so many people making so many sacrifices, I think it is so important that we are able to offer a sense of direction and a sense of hope. And yes, we know we are not out of the woods yet, and we won't be for a while. But there is an old word which has long disappeared from the dictionary, which I think sums up where we are. The word respair was used in the 15th century to describe the return of hope after a period of despair. And recent news gives us this cautious confidence that we can pull each other through this and start to move into a better future. I think it is time to respair and reset. And for that, you can count on Europe for both. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, uh, Ursula. 
um, for that uh, introduction. Let's uh, reset, uh, respair. Uh, there's so many things uh, that we could discuss, uh, but so little uh, time. You also seen that Secretary Kerry has uh, joined us. Uh, we know that uh, you also touched uh, on the transatlantic uh, cooperation. I, I guess there are no opportunities for cooperation uh, in the field of climate, uh, but also uh, on trade uh, moving forward. So how do you see uh, the transatlantic cooperation moving forward uh, in uh, the coming years now uh, with uh, the new uh, political reality that we are faced with? Yes, so first of all, uh, one of the big changes is um, we will have again a friend in the White House and the tone will be different. So this is completely, um, I, I was about to say new, but it is something which we knew we had missed for a while and now we are happy to have that back. But indeed it is time for reorientation. So we should not forget that uh, we are kind of between a rising China which indeed accelerates its authoritarian policies and increases external power project projection. We see a Russia that fills every geopolitical power vacuum and exploits every conflict in its neighborhood. And we should not forget that we saw this week an announcement, uh, you've all heard it in the news, um, to establish a new regional comprehensive economic partnership with the Asian ASEAN members um, and five of its partners. And I think all this is a timely reminder of emerging a new geopolitical realities. So it's good to have again a friend in the White House and we should, we should not forget uh, what uh, kind of strength we can develop together. Because if you look at the numbers, Europe and the United States represent nearly a billion people. We're about half of the world's GDP. We have nearly a third of the world's trade flows. So we are the two largest democratic blocks, traders and regulators. So, but of course our partnership is not just about us and uh, we should not be under any kind of illusion. During the last four years, the world has changed. Um, the United States have changed, Europe has changed. So we will not pick up where we left four years ago, but we know that shifts in priorities and perceptions run much deeper at the moment being than just one politician or one administration and they will not just disappear because of one election. So we need a new agenda. And of course, we will have to start with the most pressing issue. This is COVID-19. Um, I've elaborated on the topic of the vaccine. The whole construction for the vaccine, which we've created together, was without the, uh, the government of the United States. Of course, we had scientists from the United States. So it would be wonderful if the government of the United States would join. Um, the second big topic is climate change, fighting climate change and restoring nature. And I've already said that um, we were the first continent to declare climate neutrality, followed by China, by Japan, South Korea and South Africa. But if you look at the United States over the last four years, Hawaii, California, New York, Maine, many, many others, 
have set their own goals already, just as what I said, the US government took a step back. So of course now we're very much looking forward uh, to the US rejoining the Paris Agreement and setting itself an ambitious climate goal. I think this will make a huge change in the overall agenda of fighting climate change. So there are many topics. We can partnership on renewables, for example, or we can uh, work on nature-based solutions up to the point, for example, to discuss how to protect the maritime areas in the Antarctica. So a wide agenda ahead of us. The third topic besides COVID and um, climate change is for me the tech topic, starting with 5G. So where there we can build on uh, established technological leadership in the European uh, Union in this area. And of course, uh, jointly press for secure infrastructure across the globe. You know what kind of narrative is behind it. And in the very end, it is for us, of course, um, the question of uh, restoring the multilateral organizations. We're talking about the WHO, we're talking about the WTO. All this concerns our values, all this concerns the way we do trade together. So we must shape our future and uh, we must underpin all of this in the need for a functioning multilateral rules-based system. And here is a lot to do, but I'm very much looking forward to a new agenda. Well, thank you so much uh, to the President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen. I couldn't think of a better segue into uh, Secretary uh, Kerry uh, than uh, these very important contributions uh, from Ursula. Uh, welcome, John. Uh, it's so great to see you. I guess uh, you heard what also Ursula said about uh, having uh, a friend in the White House. Uh, what agenda will we now expect uh, from the new president? I think you work very, very uh, close with the, with the president-elect. Uh, you already heard stronger your transatlantic cooperation. You heard Paris Agreement. Uh, are we expecting too much too soon uh, from the new president? Or is it going to deliver first day uh, on these uh, topics? Well, Borger, great to be with you. Thank you very much. And I'm delighted to follow uh, President uh, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, who I had the pleasure of working with when she was uh, defense minister. And I think she's doing a great job uh, as the president of the commission. Uh, the answer to your question is no, you're not expecting too much. And yes, it will happen. And I think it will happen with greater speed and with greater intensity than a lot of people might imagine. Uh, in effect, uh, the, United, the, the citizens of the United States have just done a great reset. We've done a great reset. Um, and it was a record level of voting. What astounds me is that as many people still voted for uh, uh, the level of uh, chaos and uh, breach of law and order and, and breaking the standards, uh, uh, and I mean, you can run a long list and, and still it attracted attention. And I think that the underlying reason for that, Borger, is something that everybody has to examine. I think Europe has to look at that uh, with Brexit and the rising national populism, nationalistic populism, uh, which is really one of the priorities that we all have to address. Uh, you can't dismiss it. 
It has to be listened to. It has to be understood. Uh, we have had it just manifested. Um, and, and Europe has it too in various countries to greater or lesser degree. It's a reflection of the in, in, in inability of uh, democratic governments in many parts of the world to deliver. And I just have to put it bluntly. Uh, we're certainly primary exhibit. We're exhibit number one. Uh, the world's moving faster. It's a digital world moving at digital pace. Uh, and everything is moving faster. Ideas, people, goods, but not government. Uh, government just has to find a way to move faster and to address more of the real concerns of its citizens. Uh, or there will be, I think, uh, an increasing backlash. I think what we've won is a reprieve. And I think, uh, therefore, the, rash, the, the, the notion of a reset uh, is more important than ever before. I personally believe, uh, Borga, that we're at, we're at the dawn of an extremely exciting time. Uh, and if you can get away from the craziness of, of the politics of, of chaos that have consumed so many and the politics of identity politics, um, uh, I think that uh, there's a real opportunity here to look and see that even as all this craziness is going on around us, there are really amazingly positive things happening. And one of them is in the private sector. Uh, I believe no government is fundamentally going to make the climate crisis go away. Uh, government's best effort is going to be to create a structure uh, which will make it possible uh, for certain things to happen. And, and the next opportunity for that structure to be fully defined is Glasgow. Now, I don't believe, and I think Joe Biden, I know Joe Biden believes this, it's not enough just to rejoin Paris for the United States. It's not enough for us to just do the minimum of what Paris requires. Uh, I had the pleasure of negotiating Paris for the United States and being there in those euphoric moments. But I also remember saying to people at the end of the, the, vote, the, the sort of gaveling in of the agreement, I, I remember saying, nobody should leave here believing that we have held the Earth's temperature to two degrees centigrade or that we've even created the capacity to guarantee that. We haven't. The best that we've done is send a message to the marketplace that 190 countries plus are going to all move in the same direction to try to deal with the climate crisis. And that means that people who allocate capital have an opportunity to look at the largest market the world has ever had, 196 countries, all doing the same thing, all trying to move to change their energy policy and deal with climate crisis. And that's the biggest market the world's ever known, folks. It's a four and a half billion to five billion person market today. It's going to go up to nine billion in the next 30 years. And the private sector now is beginning to really see this. Borger, yours was the stage where uh, the, the letter from Larry Fink and BlackRock came out and, and it put squarely in front of a lot of these uh, CEOs the issue of stakeholder versus shareholder which is really at the bottom of what I was talking about, about the dysfunctionality of government and the reaction of citizens. It's shareholder versus stakeholder. 
And the issue is whether or not uh, we're going to move fast enough to provide uh, for what people need at this moment. I think the greatest opportunity we have to do that is in dealing with the climate crisis. But I warn her, I, I want to be very blunt with everybody here. Um, even if we did everything we promised to do in Paris, every nation, and we're not, the Earth's temperature is still going to increase to 3.7 degrees. And because we're not doing everything, only six nations have legal policies in place to, to, to meet the standard. Because we're not, we're actually heading to 4.1 or 4.5 degrees. Now, all the effects we're seeing today of glaciers melting and fires raging and floods, you know, inundating and so forth, all of that is an earth that is at about 1.2 degrees. And um, we're talking about blowing through 1.5 and 2 and so forth. So any of you involved in risk analysis know exactly where we're heading here. And therefore, we have to move faster. That's what has to happen. And the entities that can move the fastest, I believe, is the private sector. ESG is now in every discussion in every boardroom. Uh, many, many more financial institutions are looking for, you know, what was, what was, uh, you know, uh, fashionably called impact investing. But everybody's now considering how do we have an impact that's positive and meet the ESGs. The global development standards, the SDGs are being talked about more. And I think the private sector is, if we unleash the full power of it, if we bring people together in the greatest innovation R&D consortium yet to figure out what technologies can advance uh, this battle faster and fastest, uh, I think we're going to see an enormous turnaround uh, in global attitudes and in uh, what people are willing to do and to embrace going forward. Now, Joe Biden is going to rejoin on day one, the moment after he's inaugurated. He will sign, put America back in. Uh, we're going to have a major, there will be, uh, I'm not part of an administration at this point, but I'm just saying uh, the, 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 administ the Biden administration will focus on every sector of the American economy. There will be a 2035 goal uh, to achieve net neutrality with respect to power production. That's a, that, believe me, that's an aggressive goal, but it's achievable. The fact is that uh, under the Obama Climate Action Plan, our goal was to have a 32% reduction by 2030. We're at 32% today. You might say, well, how could that happen under Trump? Well, it happened under Trump because while Trump pulled out of the Paris Agreement, 38 states in America have passed renewable portfolio laws and the governors all agreed to stay in. More than a thousand mayors in America agreed to stay in. So we've had all kinds of things happening at local levels uh, and we're ready to come back in and, and lead and help to raise the ambition in Glasgow to accelerate this incredible capacity for a transformation in the private sector. So I'm actually very excited, very bullish about the potential of what we can do. Now, one thing, we can't, it's not enough to say, we've got to get back into Paris and we've got to meet the Paris Agreement and we're going to be 2050, or in the case of China, 2060, net neutrality. Um, I just, I personally am unwilling to see our country buy into that formula. Yes, it's good to have the end goal, but it's going to be meaningless 
if we don't have the goals in between. So we've got to hit the 2020, we've got to have 2025, 2030, 2035, 2040. And hopefully, and I believe this is more than possible, we're going to do everything faster than 2050. Well, last night, I, I took part in a, Governor Brown had a University of California session. And Xia Zhenhua, who many of you know, is the Chinese interlocutor on climate. He and I have worked together for years. We got together when I first became secretary and got China and the US working together to move towards Paris, which helped us get the Paris Agreement done. Last night, I heard words from uh, Xia Zhenhua that were more than encouraging uh, about the potential for the US and China to immediately begin to try to work again uh, in the same fashion. And so it remains to be discovered if we can make that meaningful. But if we do, then the marketplace gets a whole new signal. And the private sector has greater assurance about where governments are going, what the future is. So I, I think this is a very important moment. The, thank the, the, sorry, thank you. No, th no thank you, uh, John. This is uh, so insightful and it gives us also really um, an insight into uh, the thinking of the new administration. We're unfortunately running a little bit short on time, but I would like to, to have a follow-up question. We, we will have then to use a minute, one and a half on that. It's, it's a combination of, of several things. I, I think you are sharing now the ambition uh, of uh, the president-elect uh, in the field of climate change, uh, also mobilizing the private sector. We have seen that the price of, for example, solar has fallen to one-tenth in 10 years. There are huge opportunities there. But this ambitious policy, how is the Biden administration going to get it through uh, the Senate and, and the Congress? And we know that it's also a very polarized U.S. after this uh, election. And the president-elect is trying to mend, but do you think it's possible in the coming years to mend this? Or do you think this polarization is going to continue uh, for uh, the four years? And you have a minute and a half to answer this well, very easy question. I think Joe Biden, is, Joe Biden is going to make every effort to try to reach out. I mean, the, the secret to making a change, Borga, is good politics. You got to listen to people that have good politics. You can't run over them roughshod. And Joe is a good listener. And he, he really wants to bring the country together. I thought that was why he was the perfect person with the best narrative to win. Uh, and he did. And I think now he can go out and, and meet with people that didn't vote for him and talk to them and bring people on board. And that's the task of leadership. That's what defines leadership. Franklin Roosevelt didn't have everybody behind him and Joe won't either. But I think he can have enough to begin to move forward. Secondly, um, the fight for the control of the Senate is still there with Georgia, with two Senate races up in January. Now, I'm not sitting here with brimming optimism that says we're going to win back the Senate, but the Senate will be close enough no matter what. And there is a shot, but it will be close enough that somebody like a Susan Collins or a Mitt Romney or a Lisa Murkowski or any others could join to make a majority at any moment. And I think those politicians are going to react to the feeling of the people that they want a Senate that works now. They want a Congress that works now. And, and my message, I know the president's message to the Congress will be, look, guys, if you don't get your act together, the United States of America cannot fully uh, come back with the credibility that it deserves and needs and that the world wants it to have. Our government has to work. You're going to go out and tell countries, be a democracy, you better make your own home government work. And, and I think that's an imperative. And then uh, finally, I, I, I just think uh, 
that uh, the policies that Joe's going to pursue, Borga, are uh, going to be not divisive. Uh, they're, 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 you know, the fixing the health care, dealing with COVID. Uh, Ursula could not have been more correct. We've got to get that under control. I think that will be a primary focus, restoring the economy, getting the economy moving. And uh, we'll try our hardest, uh, all of us who have anything to do with the administration, whether as a supporter or participant, uh, people are going to work to try to depolarize, talk common sense, respect people, and begin to rebuild the fiber of our democracy. Thank you so much, uh, Secretary uh, Carey, John. Thank you uh, for sharing all these insights. And you said you're currently not part of the administration. Let's see what's uh, down the road. I think uh, your commitment uh, to climate environment is something that speaks uh, clear and loud. And we have seen your leadership uh, for decades from the Senate uh, and also as secretary. So Adrian, um, I had very, very uh, good speakers, but they also used um, a bit of your time. So I'm, I'm now um, very interesting to, interested in seeing how you will manage this. But as a very experienced TV host, you'll probably uh, be better than I have been, huh? Thanks, Borger. And uh, yeah, off camera, I'll obviously uh, get my uh, revenge. Um, <laughs> thanks for that. I think we heard some really interesting things from uh, both President von der Leyen and Secretary Kerry. But uh, there was a huge uh, kind of injunction from, from the secretary on the role that business is going to be playing and that the private sector will play going forward. And I don't know if we could just turn to Arne Sorensen from Marriott, just talk a little bit about how businesses like Marriott can help in this kind of realignment as we look forward, but also what you want from governments, because, you know, you've... You're an industry that's been massively impacted by the COVID crisis and has had to kind of come through that. What do you want to see in terms of government action going forward? And also, what can you bring to the table to help advance these ambitious goals that you've heard from both President von der Leyen and from Secretary Kerry? Well, thank you very much. And it's good to be with you this afternoon. The, uh, it's been fascinating to listen uh, to these uh, two great leaders talk about uh, the reset and resilience uh, and uh, repair uh, and uh, other concepts like that, which are so important going forward. Obviously, the travel industry has been devastated by the COVID-19 crisis. And when you look at the near term, it's already been talked about a bit, we need government, of course, to deal with the COVID-19 crisis in the first place. And uh, that is uh, in the first instance about getting the vaccines uh, broadly distributed with transparency, with facts, with the kind of reassurance that people around the globe need to see in order to make sure that they take those vaccines and we get the impact of what appears to be a very promising uh, and very speedy set of development. Uh, secondly, of course, is about the economic uh, consequences of the COVID-19 uh, crisis. There have been hundreds of millions of jobs lost around the world uh, because of this crisis, and there needs to be stimulus, particularly for small business, uh, so that uh, they are employers and so that those jobs are brought back online as quickly as possibly can happen. We've obviously been through an election in the United States and, and uh, we see some of the same dynamics in Europe, but so much of what is, uh, we hear out there is the importance of opportunity, 
Opportunity is often equated with a job, uh, a job that has predictability in income that allows uh, one to raise a family, to live a life, uh, to, to uh, not just have housing and, and food, but have health care and education. Uh, and we need to make sure that we, we have policies that create an agenda of opportunity. Uh, a lot of the conversation that just happened was about climate. And of course, climate change is a very important thing for us to accomplish together. But we have to do that as a path towards greater opportunity, not as a, a hindrance to opportunity that already exists today. Uh, and I think one of the things that's encouraging about the way President-elect Biden has talked about this is that uh, pursuing a positive climate change can be a job creator, should be a job creator. This is, should be a place where we invest. And we should be investing in better energy, better climate practices, uh, and have that be the focus, as opposed to saying, we're first going to ban the old. Not because the old necessarily we want to continue forever, but because when that's the language that we use, those in the world who feel like opportunity has left them by or there is insufficient opportunity for them have no choice but to respond to that and say, I'm against that agenda. Uh, and yeah. so a long-winded way of saying, I think we need policies that frame the great societal issues that we need to accomplish, that private sector and public sector need to accomplish as places where we can create more opportunity for folks as opposed to places that cause us to shut down opportunity that already exists. That's an interesting point. And you, I guess this crisis has brought home to business leaders just how something that seemed so far down everyone's risk register this time last year can really devastate whole sectors and whole industries. Has that changed at the leadership level the perception of what climate change might do in the next five to ten years and to your points about the response of ordinary people employees to these crises how do we bridge that gap between people feeling that on one level there have to be policies that meet these challenges and on the other they have to win the support of popular um you know of, of the populace at large that's a very perceptive question, and I think the, the long-term answer to that question must be yes. In other words, that this pandemic causes us to think about the enormous risks that we can face, either with future pandemics or with climate change, and therefore, how do we uh, prepare ourselves to deal with that? I think at the same time, we need to rec recognize that in the short term, COVID-19 and the economic consequences of it have pushed so many other important agenda items off of the table. When we were in Davos in January, we were talking about climate change as being one of the most important things. And there, of course, there were other, uh, other uh, uh, things that we talked about as well. I think we might, Arnie, thanks for that. I think we might just have to come back to you in a moment because uh, the audio feed um, got a little scrambled. Um, it looked like somehow I turned my mic off, so I apologize for that. Oh, okay. No, please carry on because uh, we can now hear you clearly again. Oh, Sorry, it sounded like you were being talking through a washing machine. I, I was maybe I was gesturing so wildly that I hit my my computer and wrongly turned <laughs> my microphone off. Sorry about that. In, in any event, I was saying that that uh, in the short term, there's going to be need to be an awful lot of focus on rebuilding jobs and rebuilding the economy. 
And the risk we run is that that will continue to push things like the climate battle and other important uh, uh, immediate, but also long-term issues uh, down the, the priority chain. Uh, and so I think we've got to find a way to marry those two things and say, let's use the, the fight against climate change to uh, create more opportunity to build a stronger economy and not make it be an alternative to uh, rebuilding the jobs that have been lost in this crisis. Thanks for that. I want to bring Stephanie uh, Kelton in a minute uh, to talk about uh, government's role in in tackling these crises. But in between, I want to turn to Ben Smith, really, and Ben, ask you about the, uh, the sort of communications and media battle that these issues face, because uh, you know, we heard from Ursula von der Leyen, we heard from John Kerry, and just now from from Arnie Sorensen, that really uh, people do realise these are issues in leadership. Uh, politicians are focusing on climate change, and yet we're seeing in the media and in the social media landscape a huge resistance to those narratives, a huge resistance to what some what scientists and policymakers would call facts. How does the political and business world and the world of academia respond to this kind of massively latent resistance? Is there a way of responding to it? I do think that, you know, there's some bells that you can't unring and the sort of, there, I think right now in Biden in some ways embodies a kind of nostalgia for a much more, more kind of ordered national conversation in a media world that is dominated by gatekeepers. Um, and, and, and I think there has been some swing of the pendulum back in that direction. I think in this election, you saw major media outlets just much more careful about picking up, for instance, these stories about Hunter Biden just because they were on the internet in a way that WikiLeaks came to dominate the campaign last cycle. So I think there is a, I think that you're seeing the sort of mainstream media institutions become a bit more confident about trying to set the national agenda, trying to establish priorities that, that they think are the priorities rather than simply reacting to what's happening on social media. Um, I think it was actually fairly effective. Like, I think, you know, to, to a degree, people didn't quite expect that the, that, that the New York Times, that CNN still really have that power, um, but it's limited. I mean, it's not, it's certainly, you're never going back to the, the world of, of, you know, three broadcast networks in the United States. And I think, you know, there's just, there's a question of the degree to which the media and policymakers are going to, among other things, really ignore what's happening on social media. Mm. I mean, how does, how does the world of politics and, uh, and policy ignore the fact that they're, the audience they're trying to communicate with on issues like public health issues, like mask wearing, are not potentially interested in wearing masks, that people aren't taking on those messages. They're actually actively organizing to you know, hold events where mask, you know, mask wearing is is thrown aside. How how do we deal with that? Because we're used to a world still of a kind of command and control messaging, where you tell people what to do, you tell them there's a good public health reason for doing it, like getting vaccinated, and people behave and they do it. How how does government respond in this new environment? That is a great question that feels way above my pay grade. I mean, I think the question of how you sort of influence individual action, particularly in the US where every issue becomes polarized and partisan and right. And on social media, you're seeing just very linear connections between people, you know, reading the conspiracy theories about COVID and taking terrible risks with their own health. Um, and I, I don't know, it's hard, hard to see how you fix that. I mean, I think that 
policymaking, you know, I'm sure that there will be crazy views and sort of theories about climate, about climate policies that are held by big chunks of the country. I'm, you know, it, it, those things do not depend to the same degree on individual action. So I want to move to Stephanie Kelton for a moment and just, uh, Stephanie, ask you, you've, uh, you know, you're obviously author of The Deficit Myth. You played a big part in framing some of the initiatives that played a part in Senator Sanders' campaign and also, you know, some of the things you've been proposing and now we're seeing being taken up by the, you know, the, the incoming uh, Biden administration. What role can government have? It was interesting to hear John Kerry say that he saw the private sector as leading on a number of these issues. You know, you've suggested in your work that actually government can step forward and play a much bigger role in tackling these very big substantive issues that are dominating our, our the 21st century. Yeah, that's right. I, I think that um, the public sector is uniquely positioned to lead in terms of financing large scale green tech investments in climate. And, you know, you made reference to uh, President-elect Biden. He does have a very ambitious climate uh, agenda. He wants to invest some two trillion dollars. We'll find out at some point whether uh, Congress will um, you know, line up in terms of the votes and provide support for legislation to get that kind of funding through. That's not to say that private sector doesn't have a role to play as well and that there aren't opportunities for large scale investments uh, from the private sector as well. But yeah, the public sector can, government can lay the foundation. They can set the mission, if you like. They can establish where it is they want to go and they can provide the kind of large scale and patient finance that can remain in place for the duration of the time that we're going to be making transformative investments in our economy going forward. And how do, you know, how do economists like you who kind of help shape the popular debate, how do you get through to people who feel that some of these policies are uh, chipping away at their way of life or at their lifestyle. In France, for example, President Macron's government pursued what it thought was a very enlightened uh, and progressive agenda and found itself up against national gilets jaunes protests from people who thought they were being targeted by what policymakers thought was actually ambitious and enlightened uh, goals. How do, how do you in academia help politicians make that case to uh, ordinary people? Well, I think that, you know, what we're hearing from politicians is that this is a real opportunity to um, move away from this idea that these goals are in tension with one another, that it is the economy and jobs or it is climate, that in fact, it is both. It is both that can be improved. We're going to have better paying jobs. We're going to have more jobs. We're going to have an inclusive, right, uh, rebuilding of our economy in many ways. It's going to bring people along with good paying jobs, higher wages, that people aren't going to be left behind. If you're in industries that are now, you know, uh, energy industries with fossil fuel and so forth, that you're going to transition and that there are going to be plenty of good paying jobs doing, you know, solar and wind and green energy and so forth. So I think the messaging is clear in that the government is not going to forget about people and leave them you know, uh, without good paying jobs through the transition, that this is the kind of uh, program that is gonna bring everyone along, improve health and economic life for all of our people.
And do you think, you know, hearing Secretary Kerry, do you think there's a part of the Democratic Party that has, for example, still got um, a kind of focus on the private sector at the expense, perhaps, of some of the things that government can achieve and perhaps needs to realign or rebalance its faith in, in what the institutions of government can do? I think that this is an enormous opportunity to demonstrate to people that not only does government have a role to play, but that government can respond to the needs of the people and to the climate catastrophe in ways that uh, uplift you know, people living in communities that have been left behind for decades. We, we heard Secretary uh, Kerry talk about the kind of you know, um, nationalist sentiments that people are angry. There is a lot of anger in the country and people have not seen material improvements in their lives, their livelihoods, right? For such a long period of time. And there is a lot of anger that is pent up. And if we can, you know, take um, advantage of the opportunity that we have as the economy has sort of crumbled around us and we have these intersecting crises with the health pandemic, with an economic crisis, with a climate crisis, and we can harness the opportunity to make the kinds of investments in the economy, in climate and so forth today, we're gonna bring a lot of people up. We're gonna uplift a lot of people who've been left behind for decades. And I think, you know, the the reality is we got to prove that we can do it. We have to demonstrate and prove once again that governments can be successful when they engage in large scale uh, investments in, in our communities and in our economy. Thanks, Stephanie. Uh, just want to turn lastly to um, Sanjay at Conservation International in, in Washington, DC. Um, how encouraged, Sanjay, are you to hear the kind of um, statements coming out of, of Brussels and coming from, uh, from John Kerry, uh, not speaking for the incoming administration, but giving a flavor, if you like, of, of where it might be headed. Is that something that you've been waiting four years to, to hear? Is, uh, is it music to your ears or are you still uh, quite uh, nervous and wary about uh, the situation that we're currently in? No, uh, well, uh, uh, thank you, um, Adrian. Of course, it's encouraging, but in a year like 2020, just getting through the day is encouraging, right? I mean, it, it has been an astonishing year. I, I started this year with a trip to Australia in uh, February, and I went there to look at the forest fires um, and the devastation that had happened to the Australian landscape. Now, think how far away that seems to all of us today. Remember how that dominated our news and our thinking? Um, and look how far and look how sort of catastrophic this year has been. So, yes, I'm encouraged, of course. But in some ways, um, you know, both the president of the EU and Secretary Kerry, um, Ursula and, and John, you know, are, are, are incredible advocates for sort of our way of thinking. And, um, and we would really need to hear from those who disagree. Yes, the elections were won. It's absolutely a great signal, but a large number of people as Stephanie and Ben and others have pointed out, um, you know, found a reason to vote in a different way. Now, I will say the thing that I have found most encouraging over the last few, few months is not just the signal that government is giving now. It's, the, it's going back to the business piece. So when this pandemic began, you know, my organization, we just wanted to survive. And then during the summer, we realized we could actually get work done. And now, towards the end of the year, we realized that in terms of actually accomplishing work on the ground, we've probably done more this year 
than in, in many years past. And that has been primarily fueled by business. So the thing that really shocked me this year is that the good businesses, the great businesses, used the headwinds of this year to accelerate ahead of the rest of the pack. You know, if you, if you cycle and you watch like the Tour de France, you know you can only overtake on the uphills. You, you, can, you can never overtake someone on the downhills. And I suspect the, the Walmarts, the P&Gs, the Apples, the Caring, um, I'm going to throw in Marriott in there with your 360 program, you know, Arnie. And, and, you know, I think the good companies, the great companies are using this moment to get ahead of the pack and basically building in such a way. So they have doubled down on climate. Uh, they've doubled down on protecting nature. Um, the most recent climate week we held, the, the commitments coming from CEOs now, no longer the social responsibility folks, but the CEOs are deeply personal. They talk about their grandkids. They talk about timelines that are within their horizon of action. So these are not timelines that are set up in 2050 when the average CEO lasts for 4.7 years. I found that out uh, recently. Uh, so they're, they're done in small chunks so that they and their board are actually responsible for, for achieving it. So that's what I'm actually finding most hopeful. I also think that this link between climate crisis and what we experienced with COVID does show some link in terms of hopefulness, uh, in terms of uh, conservation, restoration of forests, um, you know, and job creation in rural economies. You know, if you are you know, in India and you left your village to come to, to the city for that one time to send that one kid to school. What COVID has done is, is not just push you back by a year. It's basically pushed your entire family's ability to, to get out of that level of, of poverty, if you will, to the next level because of the lack of being able to send that kid to school. It's pushed, pushed you back by an entire generation. So as we start to recover, it's going to be incredibly important that rural jobs and not just city jobs are preserved. And in that, the protection and restoration of nature is a huge, huge ally. Sanjin, thank you. And um, close observers of the clock will note we've stolen five minutes back over our time, um, which is uh, my way of uh, passive aggressively uh, responding to uh, having time uh, taken out. Um, thank you all for joining. Arnie Sorensen, Stephanie Kelton, Ben Smith, Sanjin. Uh, and to Ursula von der Leyen and to Secretary Kerry, to my colleague Berger Brenda, to everyone here at the World Economic Forum. Thanks everyone for being with us and uh, look forward to welcoming you back in two weeks time for our next uh, edition of this dialogue series. So from everyone in Geneva, please be safe and well and thank you very much.